democracy in every jurisdiction. It's really, really fascinating. But Dr. Jerry Porter, who's been serving for 20 years, um, and J.K. Warwick, who's been serving for 12 years, they both retired this year. And our 42nd uh, general superintendent is Dr. Philomel Chambo. He was born in Mozambique. He has 20 years' experience in pastoral ministry and higher education. Currently is the regional director for the Africa region. And he oversees church planting and development efforts across the entire continent of Africa. Our 43rd uh, general superintendent is Carla Sundberg. And she was a missionary in Russia, speaks fluent Russian, was there for 13 years, former district superintendent of Ohio, um, and the current president of Nazarene Theological Seminary, where Christine is doing her master's degree right now. Incredible woman. And her, um, her father was Jerome Johnson. He was the 24th general superintendent. So it's really neat. Kind of runs in the family, I guess. Um, but this is really exciting because it means that one-third of our general superintendents now, have co- now come from the Africa region. Half of our general superintendents come from outside the U.S. And between them, they are fluent in eight different languages. No, <coughs> no other denomination is structured the way that we are. So the Church of the Nazarene is probably about the most global church you're going to find, right? That we are, we are, are, we have representation from around the world, and I love how diverse our um, our, our general superintendents are. We are. Uh, this is the first thing. We are a global and diverse church. Secondly, we are a very powerful and a very compassionate. Church. We care about social justice. We care about compassionate activism. As I told you, we raised over $100,000 for churches that are supporting, supporting uh, Syrian refugees. We have helped more than 3,000 refugee families um, get resettled and, and uh, provide education for their kids in Jordan and Turkey and places like Scotland. Uh, there's a church up in Canada that's helping them. And so it's really awesome. We also, uh, when we came to Indianapolis, we sent more than 2,000 volunteers from the Church of the Nazarene to, um, to, to build houses uh, for the poor. We built five houses in five days, and we also di- uh, did renovation on 80 additional uh, homes in low-income neighborhoods. Uh, we added statements in our manual concerning racism, human trafficking, modern-day slavery. That was so exciting to me. Comprehensive statements, biblically based, to express our core values we also, and this was very, very powerful, um, we, we included a brand new, very thorough statement on human sexuality. Now, this is something that has split a lot of denominations. Um, and four years ago, when uh, gay marriage was legalized in the country, that just had such a strong impact on Christian churches. And, uh, and what happened at that time was the Church of the Nazarene had kind of a knee-jerk reaction to that and just put something in our manual that was not very well thought out. It was just kind of put in there, and it was very brief, and it basically um, called homosexuality a perversion. It was very unhelpful language. It was very divisive language. Um, and so what they did was they commissioned, we commissioned a group of scholars from all over the world, theologians, pastors, who spent four years 
working on crafting a much more comprehensive statement on human sexuality uh, that, that, that talks about God's design, why, why uh, are, we are formed in a certain way, and why, as Christians, we believe in living in a certain way. And, uh, and if you want to look at that, you can, you can Google it. Just look for Church of the Nazarene Resolution 701, and you can see the statement in its entirety. You can see the language that, re- that was removed, and you can see the language that was put in. Much more comprehensive. It talks about things like uh, everything from domestic violence uh, to uh, polygamy, um, to all these different ways uh, in which uh, God has designed us to, to live into our sexuality in a certain way and certain things that, that we uh, choose to refrain from. Now, the reason this is so important is we have gay uh, Christians within our denomination, um, and by and large, they have chosen uh, to be celibate. Okay, so it's a, it's a very costly choice for them, very difficult choice for them. And uh, we also have an organization called Love Wins, which uh, builds bridges with the LGBT community, led by a Nazarene pastor who is gay um, and yet lives in a heterosexual marriage and has chosen to, to live uh, in, that, in that manner. Um, incredible guy, so humble, so down to earth, and he gets attacked from all sides. Um, he, people completely misunderstand what his ministry is all about. It's not conversion therapy. It's not things like that. It's about how do we follow Jesus? How do we live into who we are? And uh, he and his organization and uh, all uh, so many people who are allies of the LGBT community um, thoroughly endorsed this statement. They felt really good about where, where, it, where we landed on this, and it passed by 97%. Um, that, that changed to our manual. And so I know that this is a difficult topic. I know that many of us have members of our own families who are LGBT, um, and so this is a very personal issue for us. And I encourage you, just take a look at that statement, and I want you to, see, to know kind of where we're at as a denomination. Um, it certainly isn't perfect yet, but what a huge step forward for us in our understanding and our expression of our sexuality. So that was in there. We also have a strong commitment to uh, academic excellence and theological coherence. We have amazing educational institutions around the world. That was the second thing. We're a very dynamic, we're a very powerful church. Lots of good things happening. The third thing that I came away with was that the church in America and Europe really needs to change. Really needs to change. Membership and attendance in uh, North America has held steady, okay? But that masks up an underlying problem, and that is that our intercultural, our minority, our ethnic churches are really growing in America, which means that our English-speaking churches are really on the decline. Okay, um, and so uh, we are living in an increasingly secular and urban uh, culture. Northern California, uh, the district that I now oversee, is 93% unchurched. They don't go to church at all. 65% have no church background at all. That means the other 28% have some church background, but they don't go anymore. That's the culture that we live in. We are losing the next generation. 25%, 25%, one in four of our Nazarene churches have no people between the ages of 15 to 29. Zero. Um, when we look up here at how Americans experience and express their faith, 75% pray to God, but only 35% go to church. Um, 34% read the Bible. Only 19% volunteer to nonprofit. Only 18% volunteer at church. 17% attend uh, adult Sunday school, and only 16% attend a small group. These are the trends, and they're just going down. 
Um, and yet, the USA-Canada region for the Church of the Nazarene is vital to the work of the global church. We still provide, in the USA-Canada region, we still provide 90% of the funding for our worldwide ministry. Many of our best scholars and training institutions are here. And so if we renew our passion for Christ and his kingdom, if we fully commit to our mission um, to make disciples of Jesus in the nation, nations, then I think our best days are still ahead of us. So we are vital. In the USA-Canada region, we need to figure out how to make disciples in our context. Um, so I just want to say, as I conclude this portion, that we really can be uh, proud to be part of the church in the Nazarene. Every time I walk away from these gatherings, I feel so inspired. And yet, at the same time, I feel like I can't wait to get back to all of you because this is our family, this is our tribe, this is where we express uh, who we are. And we, as, as the Church of the Nazarene, are really all about Jesus. We're all about Christ. We're all about his kingdom. There's incredible unity and optimism in our denomination. And so I just want to say thank you for allowing me and Christine to represent you uh, and the L.A. District and the NorCal Districts uh, at General Assembly. You can go online, and, and actually all of the main sessions were recorded. You can watch those. You can look up all the resolutions. There are daily summaries of what happened at General Assembly. And I really, really encourage you, if once in your lifetime, it happens every four years, try to get out to General Assembly. It is worth it. It is awesome. Um, so with that, let's continue our series. Uh, we are our family. Now, the, this series is all about relationships. Uh, quality relationships are crucial to our well-being. You cannot be healthy as a human being without strong relationships. And the church is the family of God. But it's not enough to, to, be a, to have a family. We have to be a family, right? We have to learn how to be a family. And we believe that Christians ought to be amazing at cultivating and maintaining healthy relationships. We should be awesome at loving people and fantastic at conflict resolution. We should be great listeners and able to take criticism without getting defensive. And when there's something between us and other people that we know how to reconcile those things. We don't just write them off. We are slow to anger. We are quick to forgive. We ought to be the kinds of people that the world loves hanging around because we are safe. And we are peacemakers. We are the least condemning. We are the most caring. Uh, there's no drama, no pettiness with us. We are trustworthy people. Why? Because we're followers of Jesus. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, right? Love one another as I've loved you. This is how people are going to know you're my, my disciples, by the way you love. So Christians ought to be amazing at, at this and relationships because of who we have surrendered our lives to. And he's given us the Holy Spirit. Christ literally has come to live in us. Listen, 2 Peter 1, 3-7, which we, which we talked about a few weeks ago. His divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. We can do this. We can have amazing relationships. We can live a holy life. We've given, been given everything we need for this very reason, Peter writes. Make every effort. Work at this then. Make every effort to add to your faith. Don't just have faith, right? But add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and the perseverance godliness 
unto godliness mutual affection, and the mutual affection, love. Work at this. How do we become amazing at relationships? We put in the work. We make every effort, knowing, knowing that the divine power of Christ has given us everything that we need for a godly life. This phrase, make every effort, comes up several times in Scripture. Hebrews 12, 14 says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Not just a few people, but with everyone. Do you live at peace with everyone? Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord. Ephesians 4.3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Romans 14.19, therefore let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Romans 12.18, if it is possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Make every effort. Make every effort. Make every effort. It said again and again and again. So, we're going to do that. We're going to put some work into this today. Okay? You with me? Today, we're going to learn how to fight. We're going to learn how to fight, and we're going to learn how to fight well. Everybody fights, right? Raise your hand if you had a fight in the last week. You guys are doing better than I thought. I had a fight with Christine just yesterday, right? And I would have had her one with her this morning, but she left the house before I could fight with her, right? We all fight. We live in a broken world with broken people, so conflict is inevitable, right? But how? Okay, listen to me. How we handle conflict reveals the level of our maturity in Christ. How we handle conflict reveals our maturity in Christ. So we're going to learn how to fight well. Wouldn't that be amazing, right? What if we could resolve all of our conflicts in a positive and a peaceful way? What if we went beyond just conflict resolution to conflict transformation, right? In other words, what if conflict became a means for us to grow into more loving and Christ-like people? What if we could grow through conflict? That's what I think we're called to. So let's first talk about why we fight. Why do we fight? Well, in James, James writes this. He's very clear. He just says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He was disappointed in the division in the body of Christ. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. I'm not sure if he's being metaphorical or or if this was literally happening in the church, but he says, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Doesn't that make sense? Right? The root of conflict is essentially self-centeredness. I want something. Whether it's security, I want to feel secure, or I want power, or I want time, I want more time, right? I want money, possessions, 
I want health. I want status. Maybe what you want is a sense of self-worth because you have a bankrupt self-esteem, right? And you, you want that, right? Or you want comfort. You want affirmation. You want happiness. You want love. You want these things. You have needs. You have expectations. And when the world doesn't give them to us, And when the people around us don't deliver on what we want, what happens? We grasp for those things. We take what we want, whether through our words or through our actions, and we go on the attack, and we manipulate. And we operate a lot of times out of our pain, right? We we manipulate, we use guilt, we use shame. Meanwhile, others have their own needs and expectations, right? And they compete with ours, so we come into conflict, And we argue and we fight. And sometimes we resort to violence. But ultimately it comes down to this. We fight because we desire what we do not have. We covet, but we cannot get what we want. And the root of conflict is self-centeredness. Now that's not to say that what you want is not valid. Okay? It's totally valid for you want you to want to be loved or or to to be comfortable or or to, to have things. That's okay. Right? But conflict happens when, whether it's you or the other person or everyone involved wants something and they're not getting it. So, what is the antidote? What is the cure? Right? Well, James continues. He says, You do not have because you do not ask God. Because you're not asking God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now here he's talking about material things, right? Okay, so I want something and I don't have it. But instead of asking God, I try to take it from other people. And that can apply to material things, but it can also apply to things like love. I want to be loved, and I'm not feeling loved, but I'm, instead of asking God for that, I try to take it from somebody else, and that never works, does it? Right? You do not have because you do not ask God. And so the ultimate antidote for conflict is not being self-centered, but being God-centered. We fight with each other because we expect them to give us what we should be receiving from God. Does that make sense? And so we have to seek our fulfillment from God, whether it's our, uh, our sense of, uh, for love, our need for love, or security, or health, or possessions, or even power. And our motives have to be pure. Our motives have to be made right. We have to be transformed by the love of Christ. So Paul writes in Ephesians 4, he says, You were taught, listen, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. You need to be made new in the attitude of your minds. This is all about attitude. You need to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And he continues, he says, Therefore, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. 
This is conflict resolution 101 right here, right? Get rid of bitterness. You can't resolve conflict if you're bitter. You can't resolve conflict if you're raging, brawling. If you're slandering people, if you're talking about them behind their back, that's not how you resolve conflict. Along with every form of malice, think about your intentions, right? Is there anything malicious in your heart? Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive one another, just as in Christ. God forgave you. Don't fight dirty, is what Paul is saying. Don't fight dirty, right? So let's talk about four ways that we fight dirty, right? And I, and I apologize, okay? Because some of you may feel like I'm talking about you. How does he know that I fight like that? It's not about you. This is just how people fight, okay? I might as well be talking about myself. And then we're going to talk about how we get rid of these things. How do we get rid of these forms of malice in our relationships? We're going to talk about how not to fight, and then we're going to establish some new rules of engagement. All right? Are you with me? Don't fall asleep, man, because you might miss that one thing. It was like, oh, if I had only applied that one thing, we wouldn't be where we are, right? Now, the Bible often tells us what to do, okay? But it doesn't always tell us, give us details on how to do it. Okay, for example, we're told to love our enemies. Doesn't Jesus say that? Okay, but then he doesn't give us a lot of specifics exactly on how we're supposed to do that. And it's because it's really hard, right? And in the same way, we're called to get rid of every form of bitterness and malice, to make every effort to live in peace with everyone, not to fight dirty, but we're not given a lot of clear instruction on how to do that. But see, here's the thing. God has given us these wonderful brains. And, and we can learn from the field of psychology. We can, we can learn from uh, what, what we know about the human condition. And I have found the work of Dr. John Gottman to be really, really helpful. Um, uh, Dr. Gottman is a professor of psychology and the founder of the Relationship Research Institute. And he has identified four major emotional reactions that are the most destructive in relationships. And he calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse when it comes to marriage in particular. The four mo these are the four most reliable indicators of divorce. If you've got these four things going on in your marriage... You are not in a good place, okay? But this is true in any relationship. You and your kids, you and somebody in the church. Okay, just, just general things about these are four ways that we fight that are very, very, very destructive. First one is criticism. Criticism. Criticizing somebody is different than offering a critique or voicing a complaint, okay? Uh, offering a critique or uh, voicing a complaint is about a specific issue, whereas criticizing somebody is, is about an attack, usually an attack on their personality or their character with the intent of making you right and them wrong. Okay, so here's what that sounds like. Here's what a complaint sounds like. Complaint says, I was scared when you were running late and you didn't call me. I thought we had agreed that we wouldn't... That, that we would do that for each other. We would call each other. That's a complaint, okay? A criticism says, you never think about how your behavior is affecting other people. I don't believe you are that forgetful. You're just selfish. You never think of others. 
<coughs> and you never think of, of me. Do you see the difference? One is calling out a behavior. I thought we'd agreed that we would call each other, and I was kind of scared when you didn't call me. That's a complaint. You're selfish. You never think of me. You never think of others. That is a criticism. Now you've just attacked that person's character, right? And when criticism becomes pervasive in a relationship, it just paves the way for the other three things I'm going to talk about. And it makes somebody feel assaulted and rejected and hurt. And it, and it just causes the, the, the perpetrator and the victim to go into this escalating pattern where criticism is, gets more and more and more intense. And then it becomes the second uh, behavior, and that is contempt. Contempt. These are, uh, this is an actor doing like different type of expressions. And he says that when it's contempt, the lip corner tightens and raises only on one side of the face. That's contempt. I didn't know that was contempt, but try that with somebody next to you. Try to look at them. What's, what does contempt look like? And then apologize. give them a hug afterwards because it doesn't feel very good. Right? What's contempt? Contempt is when you attack a person's sense of self, so it's like criticism, but now you have the intention to insult or psychologically abuse that person. You're just being plain mean now. You're being cruel. You're treating somebody with tremendous disrespect. This is where we start getting into insults and name-calling, right? Idiot, jerk, wimp, stupid, ugly, slob, lazy, right? You're starting to use words like that or harsher words. Um, you start using hostile humor, sarcasm, mockery, right? This is all signs of contempt. Um, your body language can show contempt. Right? Sneering at somebody, rolling your eyes, curling your upper lip. This is what it sounds like. This is what contempt sounds like. Oh, you're tired? Cry me a river. I've been with the kids all day, rounding, running around like mad to keep this house going, and all you do when you come home from work is you flop down on that sofa like a child, and you play those idiotic computer games I don't have time to deal with another kid. You are pathetic. Right? That's contempt. That's not just criticism anymore. And the message is that the target of contempt is made to feel despised and worthless. Somehow what you're communicating is you are inferior. You are somehow a lesser human being. You are beneath me. I am better than you. Right? And get this. In his research, Dr. Gottman found that couples that are more contemptuous of each other, if this is happening, you are more likely to suffer from infectious diseases like colds and the flu than others. It actually weakens your immune system, living in that kind of environment. Contempt is often fueled by these long, simmering, negative thoughts about the partner that um, have just you know, just stacked and stacked and stacked, and eventually what happens is you now feel that you are actually superior to the other person. And contempt, out of these four behaviors, contempt is the single greatest predictor of divorce. Once you have gotten to the point where you actually think the other person is beneath you, and you're looking down on them, it's not good for the marriage or the relationship, right? The third one, is defensiveness. 
This guy's covered in bubble wrap if you don't know what that is. <laughs> We've all been defensive, right? But relation, when relationships are in a bad place, this behavior is almost always present. We feel accused unjustly, and so what do we do? We fish for excuses so that the other person will back off. Okay? And unfortunately, this strategy is never successful. You know why? Because our, our excuses are communicating that we don't take the other person's complaints seriously. Essentially, you're blowing them off. This is what it sounds like. Okay? Um, you're making excuses. External circumstances forced you to act in a certain way. It's not my fault. I didn't mean this. Or cross-complaining. Right? You meet your partner's complaint or, or criticism with an out-complaint of your own. And you ignore what your partner said. Well, what about you? Right? Okay? Or disagreeing and then cross-complaining, right? That's not true. You're the one who, right? Or I did this because you did, right? So you are disagreeing and then cross-complaining. Or yes, butting. Yes, but, yes, but, yes, but, right? My kids used to uh, use this all the time. Yeah, but, right? So I would, I said, I used to make up a, uh, this you know, monster called a yabbit. And I said, like, I think I hear the yabbit. I just heard, did you hear the yabbit? Right? And like, Dad, you know. Yes, but yes, but yes, but. You start off agreeing, but you end up disagreeing, right? Whenever you say yes, but, the yes doesn't count because you said but, right? Or repeating yourself without paying attention to what the other person is saying, right? It's like you didn't hear them at all. You just keep repeating yourself. That's defensive behavior. Or whining. That's not fair. Okay? This is what it sounds like. Uh, the wife says something like, Did you call Betty and Ralph to let them know that we're not coming tonight as you promised this morning? Right? Did you call them? Um, and he says, I was just too darn busy today. As a matter of fact, you know just how busy my schedule was. Why didn't you do it? Right? So that's defensive behavior. Um, and then he turns the tables and he makes it her fault. So a non, what's a non-defensive response? It sounds like this. Oh, I forgot. I should have asked you this morning to do it because I knew my day would be packed. Let me call them right now. That's a non-defensive. You're, you're, you're giving some kind of story, right, which is I was busy, you know, but you don't voice responsibility to the person. You own it, right? I should have, I should have asked you to call because I knew I'd be really busy today. Defensiveness essentially is blaming your partner. It never works. Okay? What's the last one? The last one is stonewalling. Stonewalling occurs when the listener withdraws from the interaction. Okay? One person shuts down and closes himself or herself off from the other person. It's lack of responsiveness. Rather than confronting the issues okay, with our partner, we make these evasive maneuvers. Right? We tune out, we turn away, we act busy, right? Or we engage in some kind of obsessive behavior. Partners may think that they're trying to be neutral. A lot of times people who withdraw, they stonewall, they think, well, I'm just trying to be neutral. I just don't want to get in a fight. But really what you're doing is you, when you stonewall, you convey disapproval. There's distance, separation, disconnection. Sometimes it even makes you seem smug, right? I just, I don't even need to engage with you. Um, so it's stony silence or just monosyllabic, like mutterings, one-syllable mutterings, like, you know, that's going to be stonewalling somebody. Um, 
Changing the subject can be a form of stonewalling. Removing yourself physically, the silent treatment. And I, I can't tell you what stonewalling sounds like because it doesn't sound like anything, right? It's just silence. So what are some of the antidotes? What can we do differently? Okay, those are four ways to fight dirty. And please don't go home today and turn to the, your partner in the car and say, you do all four of those things, right? <laughs> And then tomorrow I'm going to get all these phone calls in my office like, you just made our marriage worse. No, don't do that, okay? What I want you to do is reflect on how you may do these things, okay? <clears throat> what are some antidotes? Criticism. The antidote to criticism is to make a complaint and then a request, right? A complaint focuses on a specific behavior, a criticism attacks the character of the whole person. So you need to learn how to complain without blame. Say that. Complain without blame. Okay? Rhymes, right? Um, you talk about your feelings using I statements and you express a positive need. What do you feel? What do you need? You make a specific complaints and requests. For example, when X happened, I felt Y and I want Z. Okay? Let's say that. When X happened, I felt Y, I want Z, okay? So criticism sounds like this. You always talk about yourself. You are so selfish, okay? The antidote, you make a complaint. When this happened, I felt this and I want this, okay? I'm feeling left out by our talk tonight. Can we please talk about my day? Now, I can say that in a very, I'm feeling so left out about our talk tonight. Can we talk about my day? Right? And that's very, like, that doesn't help, right? Say it, how you say it matters. But, but you've identified something, right? Our talk tonight, when this happened, I felt left out. Can we talk about my day? Very simple. So learn to complain without blame. Okay? Everybody's broken. And there's no shame in that. There's no shame in the fact that we're all broken. But you can put shame in that conversation, right? So I can speak about how someone's actions have affected me without attacking them. All right? Okay. So secondly, contempt. Contempt. Contempt reveals a posture of superiority. Okay? It's a form of pride. Sarcasm, cynicism, name-calling, eye-rolling, sneering, mockery, hostile humor. They are all ways of saying, I'm better than you. And so contempt is the greatest predictor of divorce. It's got to be eliminated. What is the antidote? Building a culture of appreciation and respect. Contempt says, you're an idiot. Okay? The antidote says, I'm proud of the way that you handled that. Now, you might say, well, what if that's not true? How could I, if I think he's an idiot, then how can I say that, you know, I'm proud of... Find something to affirm. Find something to affirm and humble yourself. Just think, man, who do I think I am? I'm calling that person an idiot. How many idiotic things have I done in my life, right? This is about humility. It's about humility. And so we should make a shift in our relationships to appreciation. Five times as many positive things for the one maybe negative interaction that we have. So remember that contempt reveals a spirit of pride, and we are called to walk in humility. Sometimes you've got to catch yourself and say, who do I think I am thinking what I'm thinking, saying what I'm saying, okay? 
defensiveness. <clears throat> Instead of defensiveness, the antidote to that is simply accepting responsibility. Defensiveness is a way of blaming your partner. You're saying the problem isn't me, the problem is you, the problem is the universe, you know. And as a result, the problem is not resolved and it just escalates. So you accept responsibility even for just a part of the conflict. Defensiveness sounds like this. It's not my fault that we're always this late. It's your fault. Okay? Antidote says, well, part of this is my problem. I need to think more about time also. Okay? So validate your partner. Try to let your partner know what it is that they're saying that actually makes sense to you. Maybe not the whole thing, but you're saying, that makes sense, that makes sense, I agree with this. Find as many points of agreement as you can. Validate what your partner is saying to you. And then claim some responsibility. What can I learn from this? What can I do about this? We are defensive when we are afraid of condemnation. That's why we're defensive. Because we don't, we don't want the consequences of that, right? Because if I accept responsibility, that means I'm liable. And that means I have to, there's going to be some consequences, right? Punishment. But we know that the love of God casts out fear. In 1 John 4, 16, John writes this, God is love, and whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we're like Jesus. And there is no fear in love, but perfect love, the perfect love of God drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. If you understand the love of God, you know that you do not stand condemned before Him. And there's nothing that you do that cannot be forgiven by God. And that gives me freedom then to be able to take responsibility for my actions. Does that make sense? When we live in the perfect love of God, He becomes our security. He becomes our strength. And I can confess my sins. And I can, I can accept responsibility for my part of the problem. I don't have to be defensive. I can come towards my partner, my children, my coworker, without fear. The last one is stonewalling. What do you do if, you're, if this is you and you stonewall a lot? The antidote to that is to cool off and then re-engage. Cool off and re-engage. Stonewalling occurs when you withdraw from the interaction completely. And the antidote to that is to practice what we call psychological self-soothing. Okay? And that means first that you stop the conflict discussion, give yourself a break. Okay? Otherwise, you're just going to explode, and then all the other stuff is going to come in, criticism and contempt and all of that. Right? So the only reasonable thing to do in this case is to let your partner know that you are feeling flooded and you need to take a break. You have to say that. Right? You can't just walk away. You're going to say, I'm feeling overwhelmed. Can you give me a few minutes? Okay, not, can you give me three months? Okay. The break ideally should last about 20 minutes. Why do I say 20 minutes? Because the goal is not to ignore the problem. The goal is to bring down your psychological stress levels. Okay, bring down the adrenaline. Bring down the like fight or flight feeling. So what you don't do is you don't sit, away, sit here for 20 minutes and then think about the problem and formulate your arguments. That's not cooling off, okay? That'll just make you matter. And then when you get back, now you've had 20 minutes to get all your arguments ready, right? What you do is you take a walk, you listen to music, 
you read a magazine. They did a study uh, where they had couples who were in a hot, like in a, just a, an ar argumentative point of frame of mind. And then they said, all right, guys, 15-minute break. And they gave them magazines to read. And they said, I just read, read the magazines, just fluffy stuff, you know, whatever. And they came back, and they were just so much more easy to, it's easier for them to engage because they had done something to distract themselves. And bring, it's a physiological thing. Right? You have to physiologically and psychologically cool yourself down and then re-engage. Okay? So it's not meant to be a long, a long time. Um, Proverbs 15, uh, 18 says, a hot-tempered person. Anybody know a hot-tempered person? Are you a hot-tempered person? A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. So you want to be the one who's not the hot-tempered person. Cool yourself off. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. So stonewalling, cutting people off is not an option. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. So we need to learn how to do that to engage in a positive way. Okay, we need relational oxygen. That oxygen comes from the Holy Spirit, not from the other person. So when I'm relationally good and I, with God and I'm being fed, I have the strength to be able to engage other people. Okay, but do not cut yourself off. Just cool off. Bring your, bring your stress levels down, and then re-engage. Okay? Here's a few other things, just some general rules of engagement. Do you have rules of engagement in your marriage or in your relationships with your kids? Things that you, lines that you say, we're not going to cross this line. These are the ground rules. Right? Any, any sport... Uh, any fighting sport has rules, right? Even MMA has rules, right? Um, and so you've got to abide by those rules. What are your rules? Do you have any rules? If you've got no, if it's no holds barred in your relationship, you're in trouble. You have to have some mutually agreed on ground rules, okay? So here are some. Number one, don't lose control. Stay in control. When you're out of control, you can't continue. You need to stop. Don't stonewall, right? But you need, to, you need to stop for a second. So don't blow your stack, okay? James 1.19 says this. This you know, my beloved brethren. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of a man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Say that with me. The anger of a man or a woman, right, does not achieve the righteousness of God need to be in control. Okay? Don't lose control. Number two, go straight to the source. Jesus talks about this extensively in Matthew 18. Go to the source. No gossip. No slander. These are listed as grave sins in the body of Christ. Right up there with stealing. Right up there with sexual immorality. Right up there right, with greed and murder. Gossip is right up there, guys. So is slander. And some of us think that that's an innocent sin. It is not. Right? If you have an issue with somebody, go to them. Okay? Um, so I'm not going to go to some other person and badmouth my wife. I may go for advice. Okay? But I'm not going to go to gossip or slander her or any of you. Right? Um, thirdly, don't overgeneralize. Don't say things like never, always, Every time, all the time, like you always leave the toilet seat up. Like, no. One out of a hundred, I put it down, right? 
or you never close the cap on the toothpaste, or you never listen. You're always late, right? Um, the truth is nobody engages in a specific behavior all the time. It's a loaded accusation. You're already set up for a fight, okay? Don't use universal language. And by the way, Christine and I still do that with each other, but because we know it's a ground rule, I'm able to say, you know, honey, I don't always do that, right? <laughs> like, what if you always do that? Yeah. You could say, I quite frequently do that to the point where it may seem like it's all the time, you know? <laughs> if you're really wanting to be honest, right? But, but, that, but the thing is, you, you want to honor people, right? And, you, and so I have permission to say to Christine, I don't always do that, do I? She says, no, but I'm so frustrated because by the frequency by which you do it. Right? That's a fair statement, right? Okay? Uh, next, watch your mouth. It's a big one, guys. Watch your mouth. No coarse language. Christine and I have a rule. We don't cuss. That's not to say we've never cussed. But when we do, we know we've crossed a line. And we're pretty quick to say that's inappropriate. Right? We, we stop. Right? No coarse language, personal attacks, name calling. Name calling is a big no-no in our families. When we see the kids doing it to each other, we put a lid on that really quick. Right? Proverbs 12.18 says, There is one who speaks rashly, like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Your words hurt people. They are like daggers, right? There is one who speaks rashly, like the thrusts of a sword. The tongue of the wise brings healing. So watch your mouth. Next, um, no physical force ever, 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 ever. Unless you are defending yourself from violence or threat or abuse or physical force, you know, the physical force has no place in an emotionally charged situation with your loved one or anyone ever, right? Ever. Don't go there. And if you are being abused in your marriage, you don't need to stay. Okay? Um, there are some Christians that have stayed in a, in a physically abusive or sexually abusive or even emotionally abusive marriage far longer than they should. Okay. Um, don't threaten divorce. Don't threaten divorce. Now, some of you might think, well, does that mean that's forever off the table? We can never talk about it? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you don't use it as a threat in an argument. Right? That is the equivalent of a verbal weapon of mass destruction. You say that D word in the middle of an argument, <laughs> there's collateral damage everywhere. Christine and I have used it once in our 15 years of marriage, and we regret it. We'll never do it again. I hope not. Right? Um, now, there are exceptions to this uh, when, again, in, in issues of adultery or addiction or abuse, um, there are times, these are called the triple A's, right? There are times when um, divorce may be your best option, um, but only when you've really talked to a trusted um, and vetted Christian counselor who can speak with you together, not individually. Okay? So I'm not denying the reality of that at times. But I'm, please don't use it as a weapon in an argument. Lastly, um, don't assign false motives. What does that mean? 
That means if somebody says something, don't read into a motive into that that wasn't possibly there. It's v we, that's very unhelpful um, in, a, in a conflict. And cr when Christine and I do it to each other, it never goes well after that, right? So for example, you know, let's say, um, I say, why didn't you do the dishes, right? I got home and it's late at night and the dishes aren't done. Are you saying I'm a lazy person and I don't do anything to help around the house? And No, that's not, that wasn't what I was saying. And if it was my intention, we need to talk about that. You know? But be careful about assigning a motive to what your, your partner is doing. It's, it's much more dignifying to ask them. I'm having trouble, for example, I'm having trouble um, understanding what just happened there. Can you tell me what you were thinking? Right. So I'm, not, I'm, I'm letting them speak. And I, and I may not fully agree with the, what they're telling me. I may feel they're not being entirely honest. But we can talk about that in a respectful way. So these are some rules of engagement. You might have others. There's nothing, you know, this is not like straight out of the Bible. These are just things that are wise. Some of them are, uh, many of them are backed up by, by things that we know in the scriptures. But you should have your own, right? Rules of engagement. So what if you're doing these things? What if you're doing these things? Number one, don't panic. Don't panic. Please don't panic. Don't freak out. Okay? And say, oh my gosh, we're doomed. Okay? Don't panic. Um, it's, it's common. It's common. Okay? Secondly, don't blame. Don't blame the other person. Don't, don't start saying all of these things are your fault. If you didn't do this, don't do that. Don't shame. Don't shame the person. Okay? Don't start heaping shame on your partner. This is meant for you. This is meant for you to, to in, think about how you may do these things and how you can together come with, with some good rules of engagement within your relationships, okay? I talked about marriage quite a bit today, but this, this applies to any relationships. Let me just conclude with a couple of thoughts. One is that fighting well ultimately has to do with affirming the dignity and respect that is due to all people as image bearers of God. That person you're fighting with is a child of God made in the image of God, deserving of respect, deserving of dignity, deserving of love. Okay? So it begins with that. Do you fundamentally see that person as somebody who is inherently worthy of dignity and respect? And if you have violated that, that's on you. Okay? Um, secondly, we got to do the work, guys. Um, get help get counseling. There are tons of books that you can read. Do the work. Do the research. Everybody can Google how to fight well. Right? Relationship repair. How to resolve conflict with your spouse. You can read. Right? You can take a class. All the tools are out there. And I want to say that there is far, 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 far more to fighting well than we could ever cover in one sermon. And all I'm saying to you is, let this be the beginning of a very healthy conversation, a very healthy journey for you, that you learn how to fight well. If you have never really learned how to do that, it's time to start. Okay? It's, this is so important, guys. We have to learn how to fight well, because fighting is always going to be part of our lives. In Hebrews 12, 14, as we read, it says, we are to make every effort to live in peace with each other and be holy. Are you making every effort? Every, every effort. Okay, get connected with people. Find a support group. Do whatever you need to do. Don't put this on the back burner. And then, so lastly, I would just say, keep at it. Keep going to church. Stay in the Word. There is a spiritual component 
to these kinds of conflicts. We are called to fight spiritually, put on the full armor of God. There's a spiritual battle going on here, especially for marriages. Right? And so we are to prepare ourselves. Keep at it. Keep at it. Ultimately, this is about, uh, conflict is about pride. There's usually pride, always pride in there somewhere. Rick Warren says, pride builds walls between people, and humility builds bridges. When I'm walking in humility, I'm not going to be criticizing you. I may have a complaint, but I'm not going to attack who you are as a person. If I'm walking in humility, I'm not going to look at you contemptuously with contempt. I'm not going to think I'm better than you. If I'm walking in humility, I'm not going to be defensive. I'll be able to acknowledge my own issues. And if I'm walking in humility, I'm not going to cut myself off from you. I know that you are a person who needs love and belonging just as much as I do. And so how can I possibly just cut myself off from you? I need to come towards you. I may need time to cool myself off, right? But in humility, I'm committed to this. So I just want to ask you to walk in humility with us, with your partners. It's a good series, right? We're continuing to talk about our relationships. We're going to get better and better and better at this. There's hope, okay? There's hope. Let's pray. Lord, we are wired for relationships. Can't exist, can't, can't have a healthy life without good relationships. And so help us to, uh, to do that well, Lord, to walk in humility. And if we've been guilty of any of these four things, we know that in Christ there's no condemnation. But please don't leave us there. Don't leave us in a place where we're just always criticizing and condemning, where we're stonewalling or just always being defensive. Help us to honor and respect uh, the people around us. In you, we have everything we need. And so we thank you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.